AWS. Yeah, what happened? Uh, you know, you think AWS, after being alive this long, being like pretty much the first cloud provider, would have a handle on, you know, releasing changes and on documenting issues. But uh, apparently not. Well, they always drive home the durability thing. 11 nines of durability, whatever it is. How many are they up to now? Well, the thing is their software is up, but it doesn't actually do what it's supposed to. Yeah. So... <laughs> That's always a struggle. <laughs> yeah. It's very easy to keep the thing up if you're just happy with all your bugs. <laughs> don't have to change anything. Uh, and they just add Makes more features onto everything that don't actually do anything. And sometimes break other things. Yeah. Which is, that's software. But, um, you know, you'd think GCP is so much better at this stuff, it feels. Maybe GCP doesn't have the workload that AWS does. Yeah, well, AWS has to keep up with all 7,000 of its products. Yeah. Have you seen, have and you counting. clicked on the AWS like search bar? There's. I logged in for the first time in ages the other day and it's totally different. To it's it's a nightmare. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Because normally the back end infrastructure stuff's all you. Yeah. And, you and do I don't even use the. You Terraform most of the time. I, I barely look at the, the, the console. I had to today because it was uh, serverless related. Yeah, what it happened? Was a, as a. API gateway. So um, they, I've we use the HTTP gateway um, instead of the REST gateway. Yeah. So what's the difference between the two? You told me this earlier, but REST is like so they they Wh came so out. Hold on, yep. hold on. Which was the first one that came out? REST. A REST. Okay. Yeah. So REST came out, um, and it was designed to be like uh, it, it, it was essentially one of the first players on the serverless field. So it was an unknown area and they added a lot of, fe like so many features to it that were unnecessary and added a lot of bloat, just like every other AWS service. <laughs> so they had, um, they have validation on requests. They have validation on responses. They have uh, like uh, authorizers, authorizer functions. Yep. You can build an, uh, an authorization policy for your functions that you have a route to. Yep. You can... Um, you can generate a swagger document from your oh, yeah. from your actual yep. created API. Uh, you can map like what query parameters are available, mm -hmm. and like they think that's a way to document your API. That sort of thing. Um, and so that's the REST one. So as you can see, there's like there's a lot in there mm. for what essentially should just be like I want to map my lambdas to uh, an endpoint on yep. a domain. Yep. It's pretty pretty much what everyone uses it for. We've tried to, in the past, use the REST features mm. uh, because we had a big push from management, the engineering management, to use as much of AWS as possible and Is write less code. Old, at your old uh, yeah, job. Yeah, at my old job. Mm. Um, unfortunately, you know, using those AWS features instead of code is, like, not ideal because mm. uh, it actually ended up taking longer to do request validation from AWS than just in line in the Lambda. Can you terraform all that? Implement all that uh, yeah. co config as you well. You would normally just do it in your serverless if you're using serverless ah, as your yeah, deployment sure. system. Yeah, I, I don't know much that much about what's the the one that they use now, cloud. 
SAM, serverless application model or something. Yeah, and then there's CDK as well. The CDK. So I'm sure that's the new hip way to do it. Uh, but SAM's HTTP, getting a bit of momentum now. Yeah, I believe it. It's, uh, you know, uh, but uh, I don't really, really care. I just want my lambdas to have an HTTP thing in front of it yep. in whatever way is possible. Mm. Uh, whatever the minimum, like, the, the easiest way to do that is going to be what I'm going to go for. Uh, and e by easiest, I also mean like the the least amount of features baked into it. I'd I'd rather not, you know, have request validation everything. Baked well, in. sometimes if you got if there's features you don't need, it slows you down because then you're reading about things that you don't need. Well, you're reading about it, but also uh, what they've run into with the the REST one is that it's much slower, ah. and it's also there's it's less configurable in the ways that matter. Yep. So it's super configurable in that you can like upload a JSON schema mm. to do validation. Right but then not configurable at all for like what backends you want to hit. So I don't yep. think you were able to really, you'd have to write your own proxy to hit EKS, that sort of thing. Uh -huh. So the HTTP one, I believe you can like target EKS and different load balances and everything. Oh, right. I previously had to introduce a, a proxy to an ALB and then from that ALB to EKS, which mm. wasn't ideal. Mm. It's a bit difficult. And then also in order to map from a public API to a private API. There's just been a lot of issues with REST. Mm. So I decided to try their new one. So they slapped a V2 on it because yep. they were like, well, this is too bloated. Yep. <laughs> and there's no way we're <laughs> migrating this this uh, piece of lovely garbage. Yep. Um, and so they, uh, they, they slapped V2 on it, called it an HTTP gateway instead of a REST gate okay. gateway. Yep. Um, and I think that's partially because, you know, REST is the, like, uh, the model not the the protocol. Yep. Um, so HTTP has a much smaller feature set. It allows JWT authorizers. Yep. Uh, so it, you can just give it a, a URL and it'll verify based on that public key whether or not a JWT is active and whether it has the right audiences. Oh, okay. Very basic, yep. but like for a lot of applications, it'd actually be sufficient, mm. uh, which is much lighter weight than what... Um, than the custom authorizers. Custom authorizers the are a nightmare. Authorizers. Yeah, and the way that you cache the authorization as well is dangerous like uh See, I used not them, a fan i used them before and i maybe i'm a bit naive but i didn't mind it maybe you had a smaller application it as well small, yeah. but uh like restricting access to specific uh you know endpoints was was a struggle because you have to create oh, that okay. whole policy document and there's nuances to it and whether or not so for example maybe someone has upgraded their permissions you then have to like reissue a token and all actually this stuff. mine was very simple fun. it was like do you if you've got a valid token you can do anything so yeah. maybe that's why it was it if worked. that's the use case then yeah. you can pretty much do a star policy that's what it was a valid token yeah. so that's pretty straightforward but anything more complex than that you really you're learning how aws works which i'd rather just learn how my application works rather than how aws works yeah i don't want to know about know? aws yeah because i have to think about the business domain as well as AWS, that's mm. not ideal. No. Uh, so the HTTP one is much faster, therefore it's cheaper. I think the billing is uh, the same, maybe. Okay. I think there might be a bit of a difference in pricing, like pennies, but uh, it's meant to be faster because they don't have to do all those like pre-request steps where how's they like the map and... How's the setup? Is, do you still do in serverless? It's identical. YAML? Yeah. You the have to just set a different value in the config just so instead of uh saying http colon and yep. then that's your event yep. you just say http api colon oh right and okay. then that's your event okay nice so, so it's very easy. straightforward yep. incredibly straightforward uh and then you have a new http api gateway and you know 
I'm stunned. Mm. Uh, the it it is a relatively new service and like re, uh, new AWS services, just like um, their uh, what do they call their serverless database? Uh, Aurora, Aurora, their Aurora serverless database. When the Postgres one came out, people had heaps of issues with that, and uh, this is no different. So uh, this morning, uh, checking the API that was perfectly fine yesterday, mm. uh, we get an entirely non-deterministic uh, <laughs> just 404. How from did you find that anyway? Just clicking around. Oh, okay. I just logged into the non-prod version of the site, yep. and all of a sudden, about 20% of the time, all of the requests, the 20% all, Yep. So 20% of the requests were uh, 404s or 403s, yep. arbitrarily. Mm. So the exact same requests that were working yesterday, I woke up today, are getting 404s and 403s. Yep. Not a so very nice thing to wake up to. No. And then as I did a deploy, it got worse somehow. So there's no troubleshooting. No, There's only uh, two other people that seem to have had the issue. Uh, and they reported that changing their A name record, which is in the documentation, to a C name record mm. fixed it, yep. which appeared to fix it for us as well. But yeah, it's not not ideal yeah. uh, that they've they've definitely changed something. Um, What's the difference between the A name record? A name is like your primary domain name. Yeah, C name is like a, uh, like a reference to it, sort of oh. like you're just pointing someone to another domain. Oh right. Yep. But uh, so, so it's not it's not the it's like a workaround then. Well, it's a workaround for this because it should be the the a uh, so AWS has like an alias uh, option mm -hmm. for their Route fifty three uh, routes. So it should be that you just point it to the which it, so this is like this is what the custom domain man manager does and serverless is make an A record and a triple A record to point to the gateway. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had to do a workaround and then yeah. That got rid of the error, but then we were like, I was going to have to manually rewrite some part of serverless domain manager to do that, which I'm not really interested in doing. No, it's so a bigger fish to fry. Yeah, so we're to launch the product. Yeah, luckily uh, I abstracted hard and I abstracted early <laughs> on the uh, your favorite thing to on do. the lambda stuff. So I think we'll put that on your tombstone. Yeah, abstract hard and early. <laughs> Uh, so I didn't really have to do much effort in the actual code base. And we've got probably, what, 100, 100 endpoints now? Um, we didn't have to do much of anything. Uh, just just change some mapping in one file and then uh, rename HTTP to HTTP API. And then, bam, mm. uh, now we're using a REST uh, API gateway. Yep. So is it slower now? It is a little. It is actually noticeably slower. Yep. We're talking milliseconds. Uh, this is not something that a user would really notice. Uh -huh. Maybe like uh, you know, fifty milliseconds or so. Yeah. So there's still overhead. The lambdas are invoked at the same because remember the API gateway and lambda are two different things. Like it's easy to think of them as the same, but it's actually API gateway goes and invokes manually the lambda yep. and then returns and formats the response. That's yep. sort of its responsibility. So it's not that the runtime is slower for. Uh, the Lambda, it's just that there's now a little bit more overhead because it has to use the crummy old version mm. of API Gateway. Sure. I suppose this is the trade-offs when you are doing cloud development. Yeah. Because uh, if you had your own, if you had your Nginx web server doing all this, you probably wouldn't have had this problem. No, no, the I can't, the, uh, yeah, just host on Raspberry Pis. <laughs> That's my <laughs> ideal situation. 
We could, for sure. I think you could We've probably... We've been saying it for a while now. This might be the uh, our reason to finally do it. You know, people have different issues in the States, obviously, or elsewhere, but we're developing applications that only work for Australian citizens. Yep. So the pool of users is much smaller, mm. and we would very easily be able to serve <laughs> most of Australia with a few Raspberry Pis for what our request... Like, even our wildest dreams of request throughput would be. So Maybe we do it for fun. Yeah, I'm going to. As an exercise. One, one, yeah, well, I've set up Kubernetes on my Raspberry Pis before, so it shouldn't be, shouldn't be too hard. There's a lightweight distribution of it that uh, you can bootstrap quite easily. Yeah, yeah, right. And then you just treat it as if it's a cloud service, and it, it just works. You then have to use your own self-hosted cloud services, right? So, like, you wouldn't get a pub sub. You'd have to, like, use some open source system, which you know, there's complexity that comes with that. Mm. So. Then you need to choose. Do you want to deliver business value or do you want to play on the Raspberry Pis? Well, it is business value in a way. It, it, well, it depends. It depends. Business value and uh, there's not always a... a well, when I say business yeah. value, I mean like do you want to deliver a product? There's definitely value in doing it. It's kind of choo cho choosing between... Everything is a trade-off in technology. Yeah. And uh, sometimes hosting on a Raspberry Pi has more business value than hosting on... Uh, AWS, yeah, there's I would probably say. cases for that. Yeah, definitely more than one. So, but with us, we just need to deliver. We're doing that this week. We've well, got everything's already set up on AWS, obviously, so yeah. I'm not changing anything. And I'm not saying that if I were to do the same product again, I would do it on Raspberry Pis. But, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I would. An option. No, but he would. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> but uh, we so we got uh, the next release coming out this week. A few new features in the app. Lots of new features. Lots of new features. Four or five. We've got uh, comments. We've got uh, history for auditing. Uh, we've got tax, uh, file, tax number file number declaration and super choice declaration for yep. employers and uh, payees. Yep. Yeah. And uh, what else? Is there anything good? There definitely is. Our backlog is, our done column is stuffed. So. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely more. <laughs> Just don't know what it is. But... Uh, I've been doing some reflection on uh, what I've learned in this project because I was having a chat with Mel, our uh, our ex Mel uh, Redding. Yeah, Mel. What, oh. what was her title? She was at the boot camp we done. She was uh, the mother of the coders, something like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> queen matriarch. Ma matriarch yeah. of the coders. Yeah, I was chatting with her the other day. And we were just talking about comparing uh, university to the boot camp. Yeah, and. Um, I was just reflecting on how much stuff you actually learn when you are building your own product. Like us right now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you learn a lot? Have you learned yeah, a lot? I've learned heaps, yeah. And um, she was telling me about one of the other guys who was talking about design patterns. Yeah. And then it made me start thinking about design patterns for React. Because I've learned some... What do you mean design? Why was she talking about design patterns? No, because one of the other lead educator who was trying to compare the difference between what a boot camp does to a university. Yeah. And what his point was that in a boot camp, uh, you might learn a lot of the practical tools that you use on the job, but maybe some of the fundamentals you miss out on. So like, you know how to write a React component when you come out of the boot camp and you know what a React component looks like, but you might not necessarily know what the underlying fundamentals are, why you're writing a React component that way. I don't think most university graduates would know that either. Though. Yeah, well, <laughs> it made me think about it. And I, I actually thought to myself, holy shit, I couldn't explain the 
pattern behind even the now component. coming out of university so <laughs> well i'm halfway through halfway through maybe, but none of your at the future courses it. are going to do it either and i've already done the design pattern one yeah so, <laughs> so, so what yeah. design patterns did you learn observer and observer factory yeah um what are the other facade. popular ones no i didn't do facade uh i can't i can't think of many Singl- singleton singleton pattern yep. yeah all those those sort there are uh, a lot of the design patterns were built were like that you know the design patterns did you use the gang of four big blue book no. design patterns book no. that's the best one uh I, no it's not over there i lo- I, lo- I always loan my books to people and my library is very small now <laughs> yeah don't do that i hear like occasionally someone will say oh i'm finally going to read that book you loaned to me and then i'm like wait i that's where that book went <laughs> That's where my Gang of Four book is. Well, I was looking for another book to read in the Kyle Simpson. Kyle Simpson, you don't know JavaScript series, and the one I wanted to read, you've given it away to one of your friends. I know. I, I only need that back. Nathaniel, give that I, book back. I need to read it. When I told you that the first time, <laughs> I was like, I don't even know who has it. I, yeah. I think I loaned it out, but I can't recall. Yeah. A builder, builder factory, yeah. adapters, command objects, visitor pattern, yeah. strategy pattern, actually. Strategy pattern, a bit. yes. I've probably used strategy and visitor, but most of the most. most of the patterns lend themselves to object-oriented kind of programming approaches. Well, object or well Java, I would say, like that's what it was designed for. Those really strict languages that you can't get away with much in, uh, so you have to wrap and encapsulate things pretty pretty deep in order to make types align. Like you can't just have. So in TypeScript, you can just like say, oh, this is either a string or this object. Uh, you yeah. can't do that in, in Java. You'd have to wrap that in some sort of uh, type, yeah. right? So you can't just say this is A or B with a pipe down the middle. So oh. There's no unions. Good that's point. A, that's a TypeScript and sort of uh, like algebraic type thing. Mm. So Quite powerful, <laughs> the old TypeScript. It is. It's, it's somewhat unique as well. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite languages. Mm. Yeah. What are your favorite languages, Frank? TypeScript. TypeScript. That's all I know. You know Ruby. <laughs> I know Ruby, yeah. And Java. A little bit of Java. I'm definitely not Java. I'm definitely not an expert. An expert Java, not at all. Well, I you're not allowed I'm to talk about anything if you're not an expert, Frank. So <laughs> <laughs> you can keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> Look, we have our style on the podcast. <laughs> we just talk about things we like to talk about. We uh, we read a, a tweet. <laughs> oh my god! And don't uh, bring it up. No, I'm bringing it up. And we were also gutted because uh, what was the actual text? It, it was uh, it was liked by Dan Abramov, so it really that's cut why to the core of us. Well, that's why it uh, appeared on your feed because yeah. you follow Dan. Unfortunately, I, I'm not following him any, any anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. <laughs> He, I think someone was like, oh, all these uh, unedited podcasts yeah. about their non-experts talking about stuff they don't understand. Pretty much unedited. us. <laughs> That's pretty much us. Cut very deep. And then everyone was agreeing with them <laughs> in the comments. So sad. But we're going to keep on pulling through because the way I see it is everything starts out not that good. You only get better by doing things. By repetition. By repetition, yeah. 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 So the more we talk about all these you know, coding concepts, and we enjoy ourselves along the way. Learn it's a little it's bit. It's very fun for me. I don't really care if it's fun for you, <laughs> not you, Frank. <laughs> the people listening, you know, <laughs> it's up to you if you if you like this style. Uh, I'm always open to feedback, but thus far, everyone just says, "Oh, it's great." Yeah, we haven't had any negative feedback. We've got month on month growth, and everyone's listening. You know, so yeah, got some constructive criticism. Yeah, on we occasion. Need, yeah, uh, we got told we need to 
say when we are posting. We need to post. Re- oh, uh, that's right. Deliver the uh, episodes. It's not much about content, though. No. Yeah. It's more about how we, we have to get rid of the TLA episode. Those apparently. Oh are yeah, no one likes those apparently. So we yeah. have to find a new thing to do. A new game show. A new game show. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. But um, so with the React patterns, I was thinking. Actually, one of the things that got mentioned was currying in JavaScript. And I'm I'm like, um, I thought to myself, I don't really use currying at all. And then so I looked up a few examples and I thought, oh, yeah, this is cool. It's just like a function returning a function pretty much, currying. Yeah, uh, you would have seen this in a lot of my code before I started using TypeScript Mm -hmm. because it is... So one of the issues with vanilla JavaScript is that it's hard to tell what's happening at any point. So you really need to go hard on naming things. Naming things is incredibly important in JavaScript because that's really where the maintainability comes from yep. is if everything's well named. Yeah. So if you can have functions that are curried uh, and then you name that and then yep. you apply it in a way that it reads like English, yep. that's quite important mm. because there's no other way for you to gain context on what's happening because yep. there's no types. No you in, have no VS code. There's no IntelliSense. It's just going to, you know, it's going to say this might be a function or it could be anything else. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Whereas in TypeScript, you have the full context of the object. You might have the class name. Yeah. It's probably maybe a comment somewhere yeah. in the file. You can jump to the definition of it. Yeah. Quite quite straightforward. Mm. But uh, yeah, I've stopped currying so much because it just in a in a strictly type language outside of Scala or something, it's... Uh, so currying's like built into languages like Scala, functional programming languages. You're a big fan of Scala. Uh, I am half a fan, yeah. Okay. I don't think it's practical, but I've loved every second that I've spent using it. Why is it not practical? Uh, because it's not a model in the same way like uh, functional reactive programming mm. is very fascinating and I love it. Uh, there's no one else that I've met that's really super competent in it. So if I were to do that, I would essentially be saying this product has to be maintained by me. Ah. So it'd be like me going somewhere and implementing Kafka, right? (laughs) (laughs) Another thing you love. Yeah, exactly. So if no one else can maintain or read it, then the language is worthless. So a company that I was at before um, had a Scala code base that was built by contractors and then me and one other person were the only people that could work on it. Mm. They tried to hire Scala developers for like two years mm. only found and found no one. So essentially everyone had to be hired and then set like pushed into it. Yep. And then, you know, who knows if it, it'll actually work out. So, mm. Mm. so what's the things you like about Scala? Uh, the type safety, like everything. So A, you get all of the, the JVM, you get all of Java essentially. Right. It's all inside of Scala. Oh, is it? Yeah. And then you can wrap all of those libraries. So much like TypeScript, how TypeScript is over top of uh, JavaScript in a way. Superset. Yeah. It's like a superset. Scala is, if you want to use this mental model, it's like a, a superset of Java. Oh. <laughs> not really. That's okay. that's not a good uh, way to say it because it's compiled in a t- totally different way, run in a totally different way, has different build tools. But uh, it runs on the JVM and it has access to the same libraries. Right. So you're able to write and I did this previously, write code for Java in a Java code base, export those packages, uh, have them in an artifact repository, and then uh, they would... Uh, oh, just sound got much better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and then reference those in Scala and you could wrap them in optionals and that sort of thing and replace nulls. So yeah, mm. it's a, it's a nice language. It's, it's complex, but, uh, and, and the IntelliSense is also just like TypeScript, very, very good. Yeah. So. so why is it not popular then? Uh, where's, where's the applications for Scala? Obviously, there must be certain places it would be used, but why is it not popular for I don't everyone? know if there's anything that it does better than I anyone else, ah, really. Okay. I mean, it's a, it's a functional language, so uh, anything that takes input and returns output uh, would be ideal. Yep. Um, but I, I can't think of anything where I would use Scala and feel good about it afterwards, yeah. unfortunately. But it's fun to write. Well, I suppose if it's if it's not going to give you anything extra over one of the other languages, maybe it's not worth it from a business sense to Absolutely implement not. it. Yeah, I don't think it would be for most people. There's companies that fetishize uh, functional programming, mm. like they think that's the the be all end all for whatever reason. Um, but it's hard to hire people because that's not the predominant way people are taught. As you know, yeah. going through university, yeah. no one's taught about you know currying in those courses no. do they i don't think so no i haven't seen yeah, i'm not a f i don't know anyone who like, even the graduates that i know didn't weren't aware of most functional concepts yep. so i've uh, i've heard the same argument about deno you know like a lot of people are saying that deno might uh overtake node yeah or as a replacement for node yeah but if there's no business case and if deno is not really offering you that much more than what node's already offering you why are people going to swap across to it like yeah it's great yeah, it's got a few little niceties in it, but is it enough to make a business case to force people across? Yeah, well, I mean, that one at least you don't have to, because it's TypeScript. Scala is a an even harder because you have to teach someone an entire, like an entirely new way of programming. Yep. Deno would just be like, oh, the Im includes are different. Yeah. We're talking about like, uh, there are things you just can't do in, in Scala. That so you when you say it uses the Java libraries. Yeah. Do you implement them the same way when you use them in your Scala code? Uh, do you implement them the same way? No, you wouldn't use them the same way. You'd normally wrap them in something. Ah. You'd wrap them in some monadic type, right. optional or a future or a future T or option. Yeah, so, yeah. There's option. There's there's some somewhat monadic types in in um, in Java, but uh, it's pretty much required in Scala. Scala also has this uh, like context that confuses people a lot it's um every function can take an optional parameter that is a i can't remember what the exact term is it's like a context or impl oh, implicits mm -hmm. they're called implicits i believe mm -hmm. so you could uh add implicit parameters which any you could say like request context is an implicit parameter yep. and then instead of having to manually like type in the request context into each of the functions that accepts that yep. it will automatic like the compiler will automatically put that in like oh, it nice. so you I if you have request context you don't access a global so it removes a lot of the need for like global state mm. that sort of thing or uh, there's this like uh, logging system that uh, java uses which like is like uh, thread local storage uh, so you would just be able to pass request context down the entire tree instead of using something like that. So, That's it. But it's very confusing for, for most people that start using it. was confusing for me, for sure, when I first saw it, because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this parameter, and uh, yeah. it's not mentioned anywhere. Where is this coming from? It just from? shows up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So if you're very skilled in Scala, I think it just comes out of your fingertips. How did you learn it? Did you Just brute force. Reading I the Scala, does Scala have good docs? 
Uh, it has okay docs. Anything functional is spoken of in mathematic terms. So ah. it can be a daunting thing to learn if you haven't been exposed to it. Yep. Luckily, I'd already done a lot of functional JavaScript before mm. trying Scala. So Ramda. Yeah, so I used Ramda and uh, Fantasyland uh, uh, compatible monad libraries previously. So it wasn't very... It w there wasn't much of a change. It's just that everything was really strictly typed. So, mm. yeah. But uh, what other languages? Go, go. Oh, go. Go's fun. It's good for uh, API service, <laughs> API uh, web service. Yeah, it's building APIs. Yeah, any API, uh, like a REST API or uh, a uh, RPC API, gRPC or, or Drift, that sort of thing, mm. all those sort of things uh, is what Go really excels at. In fact, the standard library has essentially Express built into it, like that sort of uh, oh, like well-developed. It's not Express, but it has an HTTP sort of framework-y thing okay. inside of it. Yeah, because the obviously the Node one's not that good, which is why... It's not a big standard library, right? No. So Go, a lot of the times, people opt to just write their own stuff, from what I've seen. Mm. Like instead of... Uh, including a library. There's like the Gorilla web, uh, Gorilla uh, HTTP framework, which yep. is quite popular, but most code bases just use the vanilla uh, Go HTTP server okay. that I've seen. So it's obviously not too hard to implement your own Yeah, with the standard library. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not exactly a user. So Go is simple, but it's not easy. And there's a distinction between, and, and it's, it's not complex, but it's hard. Like they're different things, uh, because it I it's very opinionated. It tries to remove a lot of the like. It doesn't have you know classes and uh, inheritance and mm -hmm. a lot of the code reuse you would normally use with generics doesn't exist. That functional languages and object oriented languages and every other type of language has. You've been waiting for generics, but I know you've I mentioned it a few it's times. Coming out. How but far? Uh, I think it'll be in. So they've already accepted the proposal. Previously, it was just a proposal. There was a proposal for, uh, I think it's called traits, is the way that they're doing it. Oh, right. Except generic objects and except generic uh, functions, that sort of thing, mm. which will be very, very, very useful. Um, but Go is like a step up from C, so it's very low level, but you don't have to manage uh, memory allocation. So uh, like malloc and free are, you don't have to worry about it. So there's a, there's a garbage collector and uh, Go handles all of it. So makes it easier for you. Yeah. So it's simpler in that way, but then you still have like C is a difficult language to program in because it, it's not it like Ruby is obviously built with the developer ergonomics in mind. C sort of is like from the time when it was built, when C was uh, designed, mm. that was user friendly for the time. What year was that? Was that the seventies? For C? Oh my God! Don't ask me this question. Eighties. It's such a mistake. It's old, but isn't it? C? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very old. It's it's uh, like a Bell Labs project, I believe. So oh, really? Yeah. So it's like Unix and C. Mm. So the command line, a lot of the utilities are like references directly to C utilities. Like printf is the printf. Like you include uh, like what's standard io dot h and then printf. Yep. Same one you use in the shell. So yep, yep. Yep. They're very closely, they're tightly linked, C and, and the command line. So what was the language that came after C, the most popular one? Was it like, is that when the Fortran kind of started getting big? Oh, I, I'm not the one to go through uh, programming language history. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
time doesn't really exist for me. I don't like uh, perceive time at all. <laughs> <laughs> I just sort of float through it. Everything is sort of all at once. I think the like the first user friendly one after that, like really uh, people said, like the other languages would have been like designed to sort of be user friendly, but uh, I think Smalltalk was the first one. Ah, Smalltalk. So I, I know uh, one developer who's who's been around since C, since C was like essentially the only option, mm. and uh, he was telling me the first language after that that was like a very exciting big deal was uh, Smalltalk. Ah, yeah. So I suppose it's hard to, because there's so much to learn in tech when it comes to the history. Like, I've tried to learn a little bit of the history, but there's so much there. I've I read books about it, yeah. and uh, I've gone through a lot of courses and stuff, uh, but keeping it in your head, it's not a, it's not a, a facts that matter, really. No. It's good to know, uh, like, to have context for why things are the way they are, mm. I think. Yeah. Like, C doesn't feel heavy just for the sake of being heavy. It's like, it was the best option of the day yeah and it was user-friendly at the time it's just our, we as we get more uh computing power we just fill it up with more uh, developer-friendly tools instead of user-friendly tools mm. stuff like javascript computing power is going to change um the languages the low the the high level languages that we're using well like we're sort of stuck now uh computing power and like ram uh, like a memory available to the machine isn't growing uh as fast as it used to. So I think we're pretty much, we're going to be capping um, like what our gains are in terms of computing power mm. for personal computers and everything. So I don't think we'll see that big of a difference. But quantum uh, computers, but? No, quantum computers require like an absolute zero or, or whatever. Uh, some absolutely ludicrous cold temperature to even operate. So but could you potentially uh, write some code that could run on a quantum computer and just Maybe Amazon builds a warehouse full of quantum computers. Yeah, yeah. So that's already a thing. IBM does this. And yep. in fact, right now, you can go to one of IBM's websites and sign up yep. for a free program, and they will allow you to execute for some amount of hours for free on their quantum computers. But do you have to write, like, is there quantum computer assembly code? Or is there, Essentially, a, high, or is like there a high level I think there's a Java. So IBM, the, um, the program I was watching, IBM has a JavaScript-like language that you can use oh right uh and there's like the the building blocks are like quarks so you like m manage your quarks oh really sort of holy yeah. shit yeah but uh i the i mean i haven't tried it myself but yeah. from what i saw and from what that um what the interviews with the uh, scientists said mm -hmm. it's not going to really change what your standard computing is it's yep. going to change other fields mm -hmm. like machine learning or uh cryptography stuff that need, needs a uh, high level of compute yeah, but not not the way not compute as we use it today. Not like one like this Boolean sort of logic. Mm. I can't. Yeah, that those are the fields that it'll impact less so what we do. I don't think either of us are going to be programming quantum computers. No, this is what I was trying to get to because, uh, as a as a software developer, I don't know if I would actually be able to use a high level language which we would be able to leverage quantum computing to its full capacity like maybe you need to write assembly code to be able to l leverage a quantum computer to its full extent well it wouldn't be assembly it'd be something or else like the one level above assembly like the, well, C, whatever the C equivalent I, I don't know what runs on them like bare bare bones mm. but uh, I, I don't think it it does we're gonna have to go deeper into this yeah 
I haven't been interested. I, I used to think, I, I had the same like sort of thought when I was getting into technology. I was like, oh, quantum computing will probably be, because that's what the news says, right? Mm. But then when you actually read about Fight it news. and you watch some interviews with the scientists who are actually working on it, yeah. it's uh, the hype is just like a lot of stuff is uh, <laughs> fake. So yeah. it's definitely going to change our lives. Like a lot of stuff that we thought was secure will probably become insecure very quickly. Mm. RSA will get screwed over. Cryptography is going to have to totally change. How are we going to manage cryptography for the web? Yeah. Once quantum computing comes out. I don't know. I'm definitely not a a uh, cryptography expert. So okay, we can we can rent uh, space on IBM's quantum computer. Yeah. Can we rent a bit of space and just brute force a few passwords? Like, is that possible? I don't know if we have the capability yet because I think it's the that the amount of energy you have to put into it to actually get it. You only get a few, I can't remember what they call it, qubits or quartz or whatever. Yep. These uh, little sort of processes that can be in any any of a number of states. Mm. You only get a, a, a small number of them ah. per computer. Okay. And so they the issue is that much like s- old computers, like what they would have sent up to the moon, mm. like that sort of the, the Apollo missions, uh, they would only have a very small amount of memory, that sort of thing. Like we're in that stage, that uh, early stage of computing okay. where it's barely even like usable at this point. Gotcha. We're not to the point where we have uh, enough to start cracking anything. Need a few more years to abstract a few more levels up. Yeah. Get or leverage or some power. I think it'll be more like hardware to, to my knowledge. Oh, the hardware improvement. Yeah. But uh, again, well, they, they not still an expert, really so I'm very sorry to that person who's... Uh, I'm pretty sure they still don't really understand how it's working. I think they understand. I think, yeah, we'll, we, we'll have to come back to it. I'm we'll pretty d- sure it's a black box. It's a black box? At some point, yeah. Mm. I, I, I mean, you look, at the, you look at the quarks. Oh, quarks, maybe that's what it's called. Yeah. You look at, if you look at them, they're in one state, and if you don't look at them, they're in another state. How the hell does that work? My human brain can't understand that. Yeah. Well, that's that's like quantum mechanics. So, it's just entirely different. Mm. It, the world is different at every scale. So, yeah. like the, you know, Newtonian physics doesn't apply to everything. So, yeah, yeah. So, maybe I'll just move over to no code. Yeah, like uh, AWS Honeycode. What's Honeycode? It's like a no code platform. Is it? Yeah, it's like the total opposite of quantum computing. Oh, like what is? They actually came out. When? How old is this? About a year, I think. Oh, my God. AWS, once more, releasing more products instead of just fixing, <laughs> gosh dang, API Gateway. I want to do a, a um, an episode on no-code and, like, weighing up, is it actually going to... We can talk about Streambase, that what's sort of thing. What's Streambase? It's like a semi-no-code. All, all of these, I've used a couple, actually. Um, it, there's always a big promise from the salespeople, mm. and then the end result is pain and suffering for yeah. everyone. And uh, you expect that business users are going to be grateful that they have these platforms that are accessible to them, but in reality, they have their own jobs and they're not really interested in doing all this stuff. Yep. They just want to get someone to code it. Mm. And it's harder for either of us to fix something, especially if it grows. It's unmaintainable, all these GUI systems. But there's a growing uh, group of people calling themselves no-code developers, and that's just what they do. Yeah, well, uh, I'm not going to see them. Like, maybe they build an integration between two services. I doubt they're going to be building, uh, like, web platforms Mm. 
or it can only take you so far, it. can't it? It really can, yeah. And uh, well, I had a small uh, play with Microsoft has this pro this platform called Power Automate, and it was a GUI system, and you just uh, automate some tasks. That's what it's good for. Yeah, it was good, but then something broke and it wouldn't work and I couldn't debug it. I didn't know why it wasn't working. And then all the hours, I think I spent days and days trying to get it to work. And then I had to... just written the if statements yourself. I could have, that's what I said, because like to rebuild it then, I wanted to move it somewhere or I can't remember exactly what happened, but I I would have had to redo all the GUI work three days. I couldn't have like, there was no way to just move that across. The more complex it gets, the, m- the more of it needs to be in a text-based like version-controlled system. Well, that's I what feel. I thought. I, like yep. I thought to myself, I'm not writing this. I'm not going to do this again. I'm just going to write in JavaScript. What I would really like is GUI-assisted programming. Oh, yeah. That would be much better. There's not very many tools. I use a couple right now. Uh, Madge will give me a output of like the dependency tree. I yep. believe that's what it call- what it's called. I run MPX Madge. Um, but uh, for example, I use that to debug circular dependencies and that sort of thing. Like that, those sort of tools, I think, are where you would see more of the like GUI coding, or at least where I'd like to see it go. I, I downloaded one today. React, yeah. React Type, it's called. React Type. Type. Oh, Type. Yeah, R-E-A-C-T-Y-P-E. Oh. And it's a, it's a React GUI. It's a GUI for building React components. Right. So you'd like drag and drop components into this. Uh, I think that, a- and then it outputs code. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's probably a better, better well, use. I but had then a bit of a play with it. It yep. might be good just for doing some quick prototyping, like working out where a component, yeah, like our component tree should look, just to get like maybe across a team, maybe you want to just quickly work out what's going where, and then you can say, okay, well, you build that part and I'll build this part and someone else builds the other part. Hmm. It'd be good to have like a, uh, you know UML? Yeah. Yeah. You would, you're in a university course. Oh, of course you yeah, know I UML. I definitely know UML. Like, uh, so I've always had UML. So uh, we always have Confluence, and Confluence always has these old UML diagrams mm. that are no longer relevant because yeah. there was a change to the system at, at a last minute, and yeah. then no one bothered to update the yeah. UML. Yeah. I would love it if there were more tools that were able to generate that sort of uh, documentation, yeah. like visual documentation for code yeah. in the wild. Oh yeah, that would be nice. That, that that's the that's where I see a lot of value. Like understanding the interactions between classes would be very beneficial. Yeah. Or even being able to just like be in a class and say, show me what references it in a diagram. Mm. Like that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because the whole reason the UML is is very valuable until the point where it's not updated and then it's worth nothing. Yeah, it's garbage. It's worse actually because it leads you in the wrong direction. It does. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I think that's what happens when when people lose confidence in the in the diagrams, then they just give up on it, and then the code becomes the source of truth. If you're very clear that it's like the proof of concept, then it can be useful because you can understand where the system started at. Mm. But uh, I've never seen those maintained. No, and to be honest, the extra work to maintain it may be better off just writing more code, yep. making your code more well tested and maintained. I've definitely been told to update UML. Uh, but then we've just tried to find, there's usually a better solution, a more automatable solution. Mm. So we had, um, we wanted to uh, diagram like which services spoke to it. So we had a microservice platform, about 40 
50 services. We wanted to diagram which services spoke to which because people were getting confused. Mm. And there used to be a UML, but instead of doing that, I think we opted for using, um, there's a contract-driven testing tool. I can't remember what it's called. Mm. But we, we tried that, and then we tried um, X-Ray and uh, distributed tracing. Mm. Actually, we ended up with Jaeger, which is uh, uh, slightly, well, you have to manage the infrastructure yourself, but it's a much better way to get that, like, service diagram of what's talking to what for what request and i love that actually so yeah some way i, I like your idea some way to have your documentation up updated automatically like yep. visual representation of what you're doing yeah and your initial uml stuff before any code exists still is valid but yeah you just have to make it very clear to the people using it that mm. it's not the current implementation and it never will be yeah because even once it's implemented, it's probably not what was written in that di diagram. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe it's just the nature of code. Like sometimes you just need to write lines and lines of code to represent quite a, a, sim a, a simple kind of concept. Not simple, but like some kind of real-world concept. Sometimes they take lines and lines of code to implement. Mm. Does that make sense? No. Sorry. So... Can you give me an example? Yeah, so say um, you've got your UML diagram. Yeah. And... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I got, I got, uh, got distracted. You've got your UML diagram and you're mapping out some, uh, some kind of real-world problem. And um, while, you've got your while you've got the actual diagram there, it looks like it's quite simple, but until you start actually coding it and you need to work out what the logic is to represent it, Sometimes the, the actual logic itself becomes apparent more, more complex than what you initially kind I of... I think it depends on seniority and experience as well, yeah. a lot. Uh, a lot of problems that I see now I can diagram quite easily, mm. uh, whereas I think it would have just been a matter of digging into it. Mm. But uh, it depends on your level of confidence. It can be very ben beneficial uh, when you're starting out to do a, a, a napkin diagram for sure, but maybe yeah. not the UML. That might be a bit overkill. Napkin diagrams are great. Yeah. Whiteboard. I like the whiteboard. Whiteboard is my favorite. Yeah. Just top up and start drawing it out. Yeah. Mm. The worst for interviews, but the best for everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you reckon? Do it. That's Now's the time. Oh, Jesus. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was a loud one. Well, that was Sorry a about that. I had it too loud on the setting. That was a great episode. Yeah, that no, was good to be back. Good to have a discussion. Always great. We got to talk about everything that we wanted to. We did, yeah. We ticked everything off the list. Well, uh, if you uh, like this episode or you don't, fuck you. But uh, <laughs> if you did like it, then uh, feel free to rate us on iTunes. It's called Unruly Software or Five something. Five stars, please. Yeah. Five stars will be appreciated. We but need to write a script for what we say at the end. But if it's a one star, tell us how we can improve. Tell us what yeah, you want to hear more of. Yeah, don't say one star. Just maybe mail us <laughs> or do something else. <laughs> that would be better for yeah, me. Yeah, that would be, be actually ideal. We publish on Wednesdays, so stay tuned. More great content coming your way. That's right. We planned this episode out. I feel like we actually spoke about decent stuff. We did. I'm James. But, but the rambling is great oh, too. Wait, I, feel like I was trying to transition. <laughs> I'm Frank. Okay. I'm James. Goodbye. Goodbye Have a nice bro. day. Goodbye. Okay, love you.